So let us begin by talking. Those instructions are halacha. So God is the originator of halacha. And we have committed to follow those rules as part of our covenant with God. We believe that God expects us to follow those rules. So the basis of halacha is spelled out in the Torah. Now the written Torah, we did a class on this some time ago, but it's important to always remember this. The written Torah is only a cryptic document that Moses wrote down at the end of his life. When we say Torah instructions, we mean the teachings that God taught Moses on Mount Sinai. Those teachings were taught to us orally. And they are called the oral Torah. So when we say Torah, what we're referring to generally is the oral Torah, the teachings that God taught Moses, which were written down in cryptic format in the five books of Moses, also known as the written Torah. So those instructions given to us by Moses, those are the original halacha. The original way that we are supposed to follow our original rules. So, those teachings though, those teachings that God gave, taught Moses, that Moses taught us are finite. There's a lot of detail to them, a lot more detail of course than are in the cryptic written word. There's a lot more detail in the oral teachings. But those teachings are finite. Because Moses was only on Mount Sinai for 40 days, how much could you learn in 40 days? And he only taught us for the next 40 years, how much can you teach in 40 years? Those rules are finite. It is impossible to ever think of every future scenario. And if Moses would teach us every future scenario, how on earth would we ever remember it? So like every legal system, in a gen- generally in a legal system, you have laws. The laws cover a lot of detail, but not every detail. They're just general rules. And then you go to the lawyers who tell you how to apply those general rules to your specific case, to your specific scenario. If ever unsure or if you ever do the wrong thing, you end up in court. And eventually the courts decide how to apply those rules to a specific case. The same thing happens in the Torah. Over our long history, new situations arise. Every day over the last 3,000 years, new situations arise that were not directly addressed in the original rules that Moses told us. And so, you have to go to a lawyer, or a Jewish lawyer, a scholar, someone who is an expert in Jewish law, and that can tell you how to apply those rules to your specific scenario. So you have to apply the general rules to your specific scenario that you find yourself in. Now, we don't have the right to ever change the laws. Unlike, for example, our state law or our federal law, which we have the right, we have Congress or the state state, um, Senate and Assembly that have the ability to change the laws. We can't change God's laws. And as we mentioned last week in our 13 principles of faith, God has assured us that he will never change his rules. His rules will stay forever. So the original rules of the Torah are never going to change. What what we do is we take those existing rules 
and then we have to apply them to our current scenario if it's not directly mentioned in our current scenario if there are details that are not directly mentioned we have to try to figure out how those rules could best be applied in our current scenario so over the years many 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 rules have been made in the torah in other words over the years, we apply the rules of the Torah to different cases, creating what we can call case law. Kind of the way our legal system works today. The way our legal system works today is we have regulatory law, which essentially are rules made by Congress or by the state um, assembly, and then um, written down often in great, often those rules give the executive branch the ability to actually write detailed regulation and rules as to how they make that regulation. But even that is only general rules, doesn't cover every scenario. What happens is, as the courts um, deal with different cases, as different cases come up, we essentially create case law. The judges rule, and eventually the appellate judges, and the supreme, eventually the appellate judges, and then the Supreme Court's rule, and that creates different laws, and that then becomes the law of the land. So in the same way in Judaism, as we have these original rules that were general rules, and as we apply them to different specific cases, then this becomes case law. And this case law in Judaism has, of course, grown over the years, right? All within, we have a framework, rules as to how the case law is made, how it's set, how to apply it in specific scenarios. And so decisions are always made, but are always made within the original Torah rules. You can't just make up your own rules. You can't just say, I don't like those rules. You've got, they're God's rules. But we apply God's case law as God, uh, as, as God gave it to us, we then apply those laws to different scenarios. So, if we're trying to apply the laws to different scenarios, now what happens essentially in our legal system is, if you want to know, let's say you have a tax question, and you go to one tax lawyer, and they tell you, oh, no problem, IRS won't mind. And then you go to another tax lawyer and they say, don't even try that. And every lawyer you go to tells you something different. What do you do? So you could do whatever you want, either risk, take the risk or don't take the risk. Sooner or later you take the risk and if you get caught, it will end up in court and the judge will rule one way or another or the, and then, or the jury will rule one way or another and then you will appeal it and then the appellate court will rule one way or another. And then another case, similar case, will also end up in court, in a different appellate court, and they'll rule differently. And then you have many variations. So what do we do? Eventually it goes to the Supreme Court, either on a state level or on a federal level. And then they resolve it once and for all. They resolve what the rule should be. So what do we do in Judaism? If you want to know how to apply a specific rule, a rule to a specific scenario, a specific case that came up, 
something happened. How do I apply? What is the rule over here? What would Judaism say about this specific case? How would this mitzvah or this commandment apply, whether it's kosher, whether it's Shabbat, whether it's honoring your parents, whether it's stealing, there's laws of stealing and cheating. Sometimes they could be complicated. Sometimes it's these gray areas. How do we apply the laws? What do we do? So you call up or before you had phones, you go to the great expert, you go to the scholar, and you ask the scholar, what do I do? And the scholar tells you one thing, and then you go to the next scholar, they say something else. So what do you do? How do you get scholars? They don't agree. So now what do you do? Who do you follow? You can follow your conscience, but then what's the rule? Who decides? But what does the Torah say? The debate is what Torah says. Who decides what the rule is? How do we know what to apply the rule? How do we know who's right? How do we know which opinion to follow? So, the answer to this question is, it depends. <laughs> and it is somewhat complicated. And that's why we're here today, to try to give you a little bit of clarity as to how this works. Firstly, the answer varied based on different periods in our history due to different historical circumstances. And it's somewhat complicated, but I am going to simplify it by splitting our Jewish history with regard to who decides halacha, who decides what the rule is, into three periods. The first I'm going to call the period of the Sanhedrin. The second period I'm going to call the Talmudic period. And the third I'm going to call the post-Talmudic period. And we'll deal with them one by one because as we'll see, each one is very, very different. The first is the Sanhedrin period. So... For the first 1,300 years of Judaism or so, we had a supreme council also called Zakanim, sometimes called Sofrim, later known as during Second Temple period, known as the Sanhedrin. Now, this Sanhedrin, which is, by the way, a Greek word for supreme council, and that's the term we use when we were under Greek rule. This Sanhedrin was first created by Moses in the desert in the book of Numbers. It tells us in great detail how Moses created the first Sanhedrin. It was a supreme council of 71 sages, 71 supreme scholars, and they also had 213 junior members. The 71 senior members had voting rights, the 213 junior members had debating rights, meaning they could offer opinions, but they didn't actually get a vote. So, for a very, very long time, throughout the what we could call the period of the Tanakh of Scripture, which lasts about a thousand years, and then for the next 300 years plus um, of the under Greek rule, the Second Temple period, we had a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council. And we had a very organized judicial system or system of councils. We had regional councils all across Israel. Originally, they were tribal councils. Later, when we became less tribal, they were regional councils. And very similar to our court system today, you had a question, you went to the local 
council, the local council voted, and um, the local council would follow the majority. As we mentioned, this week's Torah, tell, this week's parasha tells us that you must follow always the majority in these rulings. They would follow the majority. If there was variations in different councils or the council was unsure, they would pass it on to a, a higher level council. And if they were unsure or there were variations, they would pass it on eventually to the supreme council, this, the Zakanim or the Sanhedrin. And they would then... Um, though the Sanhedrin Gedolia was called the Great Sanhedrin, and they would make all final rulings. So things were pretty straightforward. There was essentially a Supreme Court that whenever there was a question, this Supreme Court was able to figure it all out. They were able to make the final ruling. Whatever they said, that is the rule. That's what stands. That's the way Moses told us in the Torah. Whatever, and that's the command of God. One of our commandments is to have a Sanhedrin that we should have a Supreme Council and listen to the Supreme Council. And so whatever the Supreme Council tells us, that is what we're supposed to do. Not only that, the Sanhedrin is authorized to make their own rules within certain guidelines. They have certain guidelines as to how they make rules under different scenarios. They're both supposed to make what we call fences for the Torah. In other words, extend Torah rules to, make, to encourage us to keep the Torah. Um, and as well as make rules that they feel are necessary for the community um, or um, add rituals that they think would be helpful for um, Judaism. Among the rules that the Sanhedrin made over the years, and they made many, many such rules, most of the Sanhedrin's rules were made in the very, very early period. Remember, it lasted a 1,300-year period from about 1,300 BCE until the beginning of the common era. So until about the year zero. So or a little after, maybe about um, a little after year zero. And so the and so for this very long period, um, the from most of the rules are made during this early period, but the Sanhedrin could make rules. Among the rules they made is they invented prayer. Great idea. Pray three times a day. They invented that. They invented blessings that we make before they made blessings that we make before and after we eat. Um, the Erev, um, there's a number of different forms of Erev. We did a class about it a few weeks ago. Uh, washing hands before we eat was a rule of the Sanhedrin. The festival of Hanukkah, festival of Purim, not mixing fowl and milk. The Torah only prohibits meat and milk. Um, and much, much, much more. Many more rules were made by the Sanhedrin. And uh, one of our 613 commandments is to follow the rules made by the Sanhedrin. However, so that's period number one. Things were very straightforward. You have a problem. You're unsure what to do. You go to scholars. Eventually it makes its way through the legal system until it makes its way to the top. They make all final rules. Yes, Mark? I'd like to ask one question. Sure. How long did it take God to write all these 613 rules? 613 rules. And, and how long did it take? Did he do it all at one time? He taught it to Moses originally in the 40 days that he was on Sinai and later updated him over the 40 years in the desert, Moses taught it to the people. Um, what he taught us was a condensed version. Um, and then over the years, we developed it as it evolved. Um, so now the written Torah itself is not that big. That Moses wrote down at the very end of his life, that is a cryptic document that has hinted in it all the rules that Moses taught us. 
but you have to know the code to be able to, you have to know the key to decipher the code. We have the key, it's a very complicated key, called the 13 Shloshes Midos, the 13 rules of deciphering the code. Um, and it's somewhat complex to decipher, but we can decipher all the rules from the written Torah. Yes? Who selects these? Sanhedrin. Who selected those? That's a good question. They were self-selected. They were self-selected. In other words, the Sanhedrin selected their own members. So Moses selected the original, and then they selected their own members. So, um, so now, yes. Go. The seventy-one decided they vote. They they had they approved members in lower-level courts, and they approved the members had to move from lower-level courts gradually move their way up. Um, you couldn't just come on, um, and they would select their members, and they would also select their president. And they had a president. And the president was called the Nasi of the Senate. Nasi, Nasi, president. It's Hebrew for president. So the Sanhedrin lasted really until the days of Herod. Um, Herod was a um, tyrant who ruled over Israel about the year zero. And um, during the days of Herod, Herod killed out the Sanhedrin. He was not the first one to do so. We had other tyrants over the years that did, but they always managed to get reconstituted fairly quickly. After Herod, they were reconstituted, and they did continue to function. However, due to Roman persecution that began right after the death of Herod, we um, were under Roman rule due to Roman persecution. Although the Sanhedrin met, they met intermittently, um, mostly to keep up calendar. Um, They put together some rules, but they were not able to work as effectively and efficiently as they had worked previously. And so the Sanhedrin did not meet regularly enough to resolve all rules. Over the years, um, until it disbanded, it became less and less and less effective until it disbanded in the early 300s under Roman rule. Since then, we have not had a Sanhedrin. We have no Supreme Council. So we cannot make any new rules in Judaism because there's no Supreme Council to make new rules. There's also no final council to decide on what the rule shall be. Now, we cannot reconvene the Sanhedrin, although many have called to do so, because some time ago we did a class on becoming a rabbi. And we mentioned then that in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, a person needed what was called smicha. Smicha was a form of ordination that had to be passed on directly from Moses and had to be given within the land of Israel. When the Sanhedrin was disbanded in the 300s, there were no more scholars in Israel to which, because of Roman persecution, to which to continue passing on the smicha. So the smicha as passed on in Israel was ended. Nobody today has that smicha. Nobody today can serve as a member of this Sanhedrin, of this Supreme Council, and therefore we cannot create a Supreme Council today. And we have not had one for 1,700 years. So no, there is no Supreme Council. Nobody has final authority in Judaism. Nobody has had for 1,700 years. And there has been no effective final authority in Judaism for close to 2,000 years. Yes? We can't. What do we do? 
There's a lot of commandments we cannot follow. We can't build a temple. We're supposed to have a temple. We're supposed to offer sacrifices. We can't do it. There's a lot of commandments we can't do. When Moshiach comes, it will be reconvened. For now, we cannot do it. So, what do we do now? How do we decide laws? New scenarios are always going to come up that were not thought of before. What do we do now? Okay, so... From this point on, there's no simple way to decide how to apply a law to a new situation if there is a dispute. If there's a consensus, it's pretty straightforward. When there is a consensus reached by all scholars, everyone knows that you apply the law in this way. There's an absolute consensus. When there's there's a clear consensus, so if the Sanhedrin would exist, they would definitely vote this way because there's a unanimous consensus. It's unanimous. So our tradition tells us that if there's a consensus amongst amongst all Jewish scholars, then there's no question that that law is valid and it's an absolute law and it is accepted once such a consensus is built. However, and sometimes in many laws, we have had a consensus. Some laws, we have built consensus. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about electricity, which is a rare example of consensus that was built fairly recently um, in Jewish law. But in very, of course, it's hard to get people to agree on anything, especially Jewish scholars. How are you going to get Jewish scholars to agree? So more often than not, we don't have a consensus. So what do you do? You can't build a consensus. What do you do? Some scholars say this. Some scholars say that. In theory, the Torah tells us, follow the majority. But how on earth do you poll Jewish scholars to follow the majority? Firstly, Who defines who is a scholar? If you have a Sanhedrin, they're all equal. Everyone gets one vote. Who decides who's a scholar? Some are greater scholars than others. How do you balance that out? How do you balance out the scholarship? How do you weigh them? How do you know who's right? How do you know who to follow? What do you do? So, in general... The scholars in the yeshivas used a number of basic rules in order to decide what to do. Firstly, sometimes there would be a clear majority. In other words, the vast, vast majority of scholars go a certain way. There is an individual or maybe a handful that say we should do otherwise. But they're really standalone. It's very, there's a very, very clear, almost consensus. So that's what we call, the Hebrew terminology for that is yachid v'rabim, an individual against the majority. And so yachid v'rabim, halacha karabim, we follow the majority. Follow what the majority say. If there's no clear majority, very, very clear majority, where it's one or a few against many, then what do you do? Well, if you're a scholar, then you would say, you would try to analyze both opinions, and you do what you think makes most sense. 
do what you think, whichever opinion you think is right. Right? That's called zil batar ta'am in Aramaic. Follow the reasoning. Follow the reasoning. Do whatever you think makes most sense. So then you're not following the majority necessarily. You don't know. Do what you think makes most sense. Doesn't it make more sense than just following? The Torah tells us to follow the majority. So when there's a very clear majority, we follow the majority, even if I may disagree with them. But when there is, just as, a, just as they did in the days of when there was a Supreme Council, if you're in the minority opinion, you still got to follow the majority. The Torah is very clear about that. In fact, it's um, one of the um, 613 commandments is to punish somebody, a member of the Sanhedrin, who ref- uh, who's in the minority and refuses to accept majority ruling. So what do you do if there's a difference of opinion about something? Why can't what makes the most sense? you got to do what you feel makes the most sense. When you say you... I'm going to get to that. That's a good question. I'm going to get to that. Very good. So, yes. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. Okay, so when in doubt, I'm just giving you the general rules. So, when there's... Let me... Let me I'm going to make it all clear. Okay? I'll tell you exactly what to do. Very So... There's a very clear majority. Yachid for Rabin, we generally follow the majority. If you think one side, if it's, there's no clear majority, you think one side makes more sense, a scholar can decide one side makes more sense. Of course, only a scholar who b- truly believes they understand the reasoning behind both opinions can make that call, not a lay person or somebody who doesn't have expertise in halacha in general and in this field. Um, when in doubt, if you're really not sure. So we have some basic rules um, as to what to do. For example, if it is a biblical prohibition, a biblical rule, or what we call a Torah rule straight from God, um, we always take the stricter side, be extra careful. If it is a rabbinic rule, in other words, a rule made later by the Sanhedrin, um, that we had mentioned, a rule that's made by the Sanhedrin, we generally, if unsure, we take the more lenient. Um, we also have a whole series of more complex rules as to how to, um, as to when unsure what to do. Um, often the details of the, of the case at hand will matter. So, in other words, we'll take into account how urgent it is. We have a concept called shat hatchak, a time of urgent need. Um, we have a concept called hefsed merubah, great loss. If something's going to cause great loss, we'll generally take a more lenient approach. Um, if it's no big deal to take a stricter approach, we'll be more likely to take a stricter approach. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of co- complexity, and, but there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of rules in trying to, in what to do when we are unsure. And, but just as a general rule, if it's a command from God, take the stricter approach. If it's a rule of, that the Sanhedrin may take, or what we call rabbinic, take the, more, um, take, the, take the more lenient approach. Now, throughout what we could call the Talmudic period, when dispute first began, and this began around the year zero, with Hillel and Shammai were the first 
leaders during this period. They each had their own schools, Bet Hillel, the school of Hillel, Bet Shammai, and the two schools tended to debate a lot, and most of their issues were not, most of their debates were not up for, were not put up to vote because, or sorry, their debates actually were put up to vote, but later debates were not put up to vote because um, the Sanhedrin was not as functioning. And then as later debates evolved, we did not have a Sanhedrin to give us a definitive rule. So generally, we rather than, uh, because we didn't have an absolute ruling, so what we did instead was we have followed these different rules, whether following consensus, which made it clear, or yachid verabim, following a clear majority, if there's a clear majority of scholarship, or... Um, if we believe one side makes more, is more, uh, makes more sense, sometimes we would have specific scholars whose views were more respected than other scholars. And so because this scholar, who's a great expert in that field, took a certain approach, we would follow that scholar because of the approach that they took. And throughout what we could call the Talmudic period, which lasted from about the year zero till about the year 500, a 500-year period, we use this system to resolve most issues, though not all. Through this period, most scholars were based in one or a handful of schools in the land of Israel for the first 200 years, from about the year zero to about the year 200. And then from the year 200 to about the year 500, um, scholarship, Jewish scholarship shifted from Israel to Babylon. And in Babylon, we were based in two big schools, one in Sura, one in Pumpedita. We were based in two major schools during this period. And within those schools, we were able to reach consensus or we were able to argue these things out. And we were able to use these rules to generally figure out what the halacha should be, what we should do, which way we should go. Study was very centralized in just a handful of places. Scholarship was very, very centralized. It was very easy to reach consensus, especially over many generations. So sometimes we didn't reach consensus in the generation when the debate first began, but a later generation, they say, you know what, we think he was right. Or we think this scholar was right. We think this approach was right. Or it lo we're looking back... Now, in hindsight, it appears that most of the scholars took one, per one perspective and only one took the other perspective. We're going to follow the majority. So often, over generations, they reach consensus on different rules. Once consensus was reached, then that became the final rule. So the book of the Talmud, and you've all heard of the Talmud before, and we're going to do a class in a couple weeks. Um, we have a class focused on the Talmud. It is the single most important work in Judaism. We're going to talk about it on February 17th. Um, we'll talk all about exactly what it is. It's the most important work in Judaism, although I think more than 90% of Jews today have never opened the book. But it's the most important work in Judaism. So the Talmud itself is the final and most comprehensive work from that period. It was put together over a 60-year period around the late 400s, early 500s. And so all Jewish scholars accepted the words of the Talmud as final. 
The Talmud is considered comprehensive, and there's a consensus that whenever the Talmud poses a rule, that rule in Judaism is final. That consensus has lasted for 1,500 years as a definitive consensus. All new questions that have arisen since the Talmud must be based on the Talmud's rulings. If a new situation arises, we'll look at what the Talmud says about it, and based on what the Talmud says in similar scenarios, we will rule based on the Talmud. Now, not always does the Talmud have clear rulings. Sometimes the Talmud would, will conclude without a clear ruling. Or in some places even, there could be contradictions within the Talmud. It's a massive work. Not everything was resolved, but it remains the most important work of Jewish law, and most importantly, it is the final work in which there was consensus of all Jewish scholars, meaning that what the Talmud said became halacha, became the way that we follow. What happened since then? 1,500 years have passed since then, and um, a lot of water has flowed, down the Mississippi, or long before they had those rivers, or we knew about those rivers, a lot of water, a lot has happened in those 1,500 years. Our lives have changed, many scenarios have come up that weren't discussed in the Talmud, and the Talmud would have never imagined it. What have we done since then? So we have, again, just to summarize, we have the word of God is given to Moses, taught to Moses orally, written cryptically in the Torah, that's been applied over the years for 1,300 years. We applied it to different scenarios, and the Sanhedrin gave us the final ruling as to what the law should be. So we knew what the law should be for 1,500 years. It was clear-cut. Sanhedrin made it. They also made up their own rules that we are required to follow. The Torah tells us, follow the rules given to us by the Sanhedrin. We call that rabbinic law. For 500 years after that, from about the year 0 to the year 500, we had no easy way of resolving the law, but we were able to reach consensus and we were able using different Jewish, different rules over the years to come up with consensus on most issues that came up um, because Torah study was very, very centralized in Israel and later in Babylon. However, after that, we Jews spread out from Babylon all across the world. We ended up in Spain, in North Africa, in Europe, um, in Germany, eventually making it all over the world. So who decides Jewish law after that? There's no simple answer to that question. Here's where it gets very complicated. There's no simple way to decide Jewish law. Why? Each scholar can apply existing laws to new situations as they feel is correct. Now, Often, a scholar or a rabbi will consult an expert in Torah law. If they are unsure, they will consult an expert. Sometimes there are experts in specific fields, scholars that have focused on specific fields. Sometimes there are renowned scholars, universally renowned, that will be consulted. Um, the term we often use for them is poskim. Poskim means deciders, halachic deciders, people that have real great expertise in Jewish law. So we'll often consult experts. Now, in some things in the last 1,500 years, we've managed to reach consensus. I mentioned earlier, electricity on Shabbat was one of those rare things in the 20th century that we reached, on the 19th century, reached consensus on. There are very few things, as time has passed and we've been, become more spread out, 
we've reached consensus on less and less things. There are some things we've reached consensus. It's clear that's what Jews have always done. That's what we've always believed is the law. But in many things, we have not reached consensus. In many things, we don't have a clear law. Often, a rule, a consensus will be reached within a specific community or within a specific region. So say Jews in Spain, scholars in Spain may have reached consensus, but scholars in Germany may have reached a different consensus or maybe didn't reach consensus at all. Or scholars in Egypt or scholars in Eastern Europe may have reached a certain consensus. But in other places, they didn't reach the same consensus. So sometimes consensus will vary within commu- from community to community. Sometimes even within community, there is no clear consensus. Often scholars would follow rulings based on rulings of earlier scholars. They would say, this scholar was... This scholar who was so comprehensive in their rulings and their study of earlier rulings that the way they ruled, we will follow. Sometimes the scholars would take kind of a mix. One example was Rabbi Yosef Karu. Yosef Karu was one of the greatest postkin, one of the greatest halachic figures in our history. He was a Spanish Jew who lived in Israel in the 1500s. He wrote Shulchan Aruch, which is the considered today the most important book of Jewish law. Um, it's called literally the set table, but it's often translated just as the code of Jewish law because it's the most important work today. And in deciding his halacha, deciding the rules, he took three great earlier scholars. The Rif, or Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, who was a... Um, who was a Moroccan scholar that lived in the 1000s. Maimonides, who was a Spanish-Egyptian scholar that lived in the 1200s. And Rabbeinu Asher, who was a Spanish, a German-Spanish scholar who lived in the 1300s. And he would take their rulings in every place where there was debate, and he would always follow wherever two over one, wherever there was two said one way and one said the other, he would always follow the two. Now, Rabbi Yosef Cairo's rulings itself became widely accepted within the Sephardic world, within the Sephardic communities. And most Sephardic communities till today will follow all the rulings of Rabbi Yosef Cairo. Ashkenazic scholars, though, did not follow Rabbi Yosef Cairo generally. Um, they did, though, follow a, con- they do generally follow a contemporary of Yosef Cairo, who called Ramosha Israelis, who also lived in the 1500s. He was the rabbi of Krakow and considered the greatest scholar of his time, one of the greatest scholars of all times um, in Eastern Europe. So many communities had an organized rabbinate that would make final com- rulings for their communities, but in many issues remain unclear. So often we would say, well, Ashkenazic Jews always have ruled this way. Sephardic Jews have always ruled this way. Or often we will say North African Jews have ruled a certain way. Or um, Jews from other communities have ruled a certain way. Sometimes we will say there's no clear consensus on this. Depends who you ask. Different scholars will say differently. Often some will offer a more lenient view. Some will offer a stricter view. And so the answer is it depends. Depends who you ask.
And so then what do we do? What do we do today? So our society has evolved. More than ever, new rulings need to be made to apply rules of Torah to our lives. Now, I should point out, our society in the last 150 years has changed in a greater way than it has ever changed before. Our society is totally different today. We have Facebook Live. We have cell phones. We have, we're being watched at every moment with cameras all over the place. We have Our world is totally different than it ever was. Many parts of our world were never imagined in earlier times. We need to be able to apply Jewish law to our current rules today. Now, firstly, we have a problem that many of the rules of Torah go against modern values, go against values of modern society or modern norms. And so those rules are difficult to follow. What do you do then? So some Jews in the last 150 years have taken the approach, if you don't like it, adjust it. If you don't like God's rules, adjust it as you feel necessary. Um, some Jews have taken that approach, and there are many Jews today that still take that approach. I personally believe that that approach is wrong. Um, I believe, and Torah historically has said, that we have never changed those rules for 3,000 years. There's no reason why we should change them today. We believe, as we said last week, one of the 13 principles of our faith is that the Torah will never change. We will apply the rules of the Torah to new scenarios, but we will never change them. Earlier I mentioned that um, halacha is a path. And one of the explanations given is it's a path forward. We're constantly moving forward. It never changes. It's not do what you want, do what you feel like, do what you think makes the most sense. It's take existing rules as God gave it and as they've been understood for all throughout our history and apply them to our modern day. Don't make up new rules. Don't change the rules. Take existing rules and apply them. But even that could be difficult. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's straightforward. Can you drive a car on Shabbat? Well, one of the 613 commandments, uh, sorry, one of the 39 prohibitions on Shabbat is do not light a fire. When you hit the gas pedal, you are lighting fires. So that is very clear, very straightforward. If you have a gas guzzling car, but what happens if you have an electric car, right? What do you do then? Oh. So sometimes it gets a lot more difficult. I'm going to talk about electricity on Shabbat. I already mentioned it a couple times today. We're going to talk about electricity on Shabbat, which is a fascinating topic in a couple weeks. Um, coming up in, I think it's three or four weeks. So let me just finish up. So, so what do we do? There's a lot of complexity. Can you use your cell phone on Shabbat? Yes, no, why not? There's a no. lot of other... <laughs> there you get the answer. You, there's a lot of other complexity that was not there when Moses gave us the Torah and hasn't been discussed in the past. What do we do? So, you need to go to a scholar who knows halacha, who knows Jewish law. Um, that's generally the rabbi's role, to be a scholar, a rabbi somebody who has been tested and um, has essentially a degree or ordained to have um, no Jewish law and no how to 
apply Jewish law to existing scenarios. And you've got to ask a rabbi, what do I do in that case? And that's the rabbi's main job is to resolve these questions. What do I do? My grandmother is, or my mother is dying. Should I pull the plug? What do I do? Or should I resuscitate? I mean, these are big questions you need to go to a rabbi to ask. It's this complicated halacha. Because, of course, Torah forbids us from killing, requires us to save lives, also doesn't want us to cause people unnecessary harm. What do you do? It's, it's, it's complicated. And it depends on the specifics of the scenario. And there are endless other complexities that come up in halacha from I mixed up my milk and meat in my kitchen um, to all sorts of other complicated questions. What does halacha say? You've got to go to an expert who can give you a lawyer or an expert who can give you um, a ruling. Now, if it's something more complex, something beyond above my pay grade, which I often get questions above my pay grade. Um, what do I do? I often like to say I'm a, ge- I'm a general practitioner. I'm the GP. So um, I have general knowledge of halacha, um, but then I'll have to go to experts. So I have experts, general experts in halacha that I'll call, um, reach out to. Today we have phones, makes it a lot easier. They used to have to write letters. Um, or in very specific fields, I'll go to experts in that particular field. So if it's a medical um, question, I'll go to someone who has particularly expertise in medical halacha. If it's a um, uh, if, it's, uh, if it's a financial question, somebody who goes, has expertise in financial halacha, so you could go to different experts um, who have those, who have expertise. And different scholars, the truth is, if you go to one expert, they may tell you one thing, another expert may tell you another, but you've got to at least get an expert opinion. And you've got to follow their opinion and follow whatever they believe is the correct answer. So because of that, we do today have variation in Judaism. And there is, often you'll ask a question, and there's no clear-cut answer. There are variations on to how. Sometimes there is a consensus, sometimes it is clear-cut, but often there will be questions as to exactly how to apply it. Sometimes one scholar will be very certain that you have to apply it one way, and others will be very just as certain that you have to apply it a different way. And then somebody who's unsure can take the rules that we've mentioned earlier, whether following the general majority, or following what you believe to be correct, or um, if you're unsure, following, um, following the stricter rule in, um, in a Torah law from God, or in a law from the Sanhedrin taking the more lenient, or other rules that we have as to what to do when in doubt. So we can do those things whenever we are in doubt. But it's important to remember that the variations, while they are for more complex things, the bulk remains the same. The 613 commandments are clear. The Talmud, which is a huge work, is clear. Um, And so 90% of Judaism is very, very clear-cut. And so the rules of what we're supposed to do is very clear-cut. Sometimes people ask me, Rabbi, um, you're a forward thinker. When do you think this rule will change? This rule doesn't change because I don't believe the Torah will ever change. Uh, We don't have the right to change. And this rule is clear-cut. Sometimes... Um, sometimes when we're in a difficult scenario, we're able to even come up, as lawyers do, um, Jewish scholars can come up with workarounds. Sometimes they can be halachic loopholes or halachic workarounds. There can, because it's a legal system, and often there is. Uh, but not always is there. Not every time is there a workaround. Not every time is there a usable loophole. 
And so sometimes it's clear cut. You can't do that or you have to do that. And so, um, so it really varies on the scenario. But the bulk of Torah, the basics of Torah is the same. So we have to, of course, recognize the beauty of Torah. Firstly, there's beauty in the complexity. God gave us the Torah. God gave us the Torah so that we should apply it. It's up to us to decide how to apply it. He said, I'm never going to mix in. I'm never going to change it after I gave it to you. I am never going to change it. It's up to you to figure it out. God gave it up to us. So we have developed the Torah in our own way over the years, and that was what God wanted of us, to develop it and apply it as we humans understand that that was what God expected of us. He wants us to understand it, us to apply it. Yet at the same way we have to remember, though it's evolved over 3,000 years, the Torah is always able to be applied to any situation. And we believe that when God gave us the Torah, he gave it in a way that it can work in any place, in any time, in any culture. And not only that, not only will it work in any place, in any time, in any culture, it is the best way to live in any place, in any time, in any culture. So if we ever... If we ever struggle with the Torah, if we ever are unsure what we should do, we have to remember God gave it to us. And if Torah tells us to live a certain way, that is the best way that we should live. And we are expected to follow the rules of the Torah that God gave us. We've committed to it. God wants us to follow those rules and follow the rules as we humans have interpreted and as our scholars have interpreted throughout the generations as as they have applied it to different scenarios that have come up. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Susan, for sponsoring. I'm going to take questions in just a moment. Next week, our topic... Next week, our topic is going to be um, do Jews believe in the prosperity gospel? Um, You may have heard about the many um, Christian pastors and maybe Jews as well, uh, Jewish rabbis um, as well, that live very, very well um, in these mega churches and um, live well, well beyond everybody else and claim that because they believe in God and they follow God's word, God made them super wealthy and everybody should, become, should follow God's words and become super wealthy. Do we believe in that? Do we agree with that? It's a very common Protestant belief. Do we? There you get your answer. Um, do we believe in that? And so we are going to discuss that next week. So. I am going to, we're going to bench quickly. Let me pass this around. And then, um, as I pass these around, let me just, make, I mentioned earlier that we, I'm going to start a course on the Jewish response to crime and prison. We're going to talk about the death penalty. We're going to talk about our prison system, um, the ideal way of stopping crime. We're going to start, uh, talk about the ideal way of stopping crime. That starts next Wednesday. If you have not signed up yet, you still can. Um, We're also doing an event for lawyers this um, Tuesday on end-of-life care. um, For those that wish, um, it's open to the public if anyone wants to join. Um, So turn to page 44. We'll bench them. Sorry? It's going to be in the big room at 6 o'clock. So we're going to start page 44. We're going to bench, and then I'll take all the questions. Page 44. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Ha